Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump is ordered to pay $5 million. This is to the woman who accused him of assault in a dressing room decades ago. Find out how he responds. Tucker Carlson announces his new show. He's going to put it on what he calls one of the last remaining free speech platforms. A high-stakes face-off as President Biden meets House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the debt ceiling. Will they come together as an unprecedented default looms? Carrie Lake's lawsuit against Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs and Maricopa County is moving forward. What new evidence do Lake's attorneys plan to present? And lawmakers want to reduce fentanyl overdoses, which end many young lives. On Tuesday, several Democratic officials in California highlighted Fentanyl Awareness Day. The verdict is in. Former President Trump is found liable by a Manhattan jury after a week-long trial. But he's already planning to appeal. NTD's Arlene Richards is at the courthouse. I'm here at the Manhattan Courthouse, where earlier today a grand jury ruled against former President Trump in the case brought by E. Jean Carroll. They found him liable for defamation and civil battery. Carroll claimed that Trump groped her in a dressing room at the Bergdorf Goodman department store in Manhattan in 1995 or 1996, which Trump denies. Carroll also says his denial has damaged her reputation. The statute of limitations ran out for a criminal case, but the jury was still able to find Trump legally responsible in the civil lawsuit. The jury said Trump should pay a total of about $5 million in damages to Carroll, including about $3 million for the defamation charge and about $2 million for the civil battery charge. The central question of the case was the credibility of Carroll's testimony, given that so much time has passed. The former president said he couldn't receive a fair trial in Manhattan due to the Democratic voter base in the city. And Trump attorney Joseph Takapina talked to media after the verdict. He said they will appeal the findings. Strange verdict. Um, this was a rape claim. It was a rape case all along, and the jury rejected that, but made other findings. So um, we'll obviously be appealing those other findings, but they rejected her rape claim, and she'd always claimed this was a rape case. Um, so it's a little perplexing, but, um, you know, we move forward. Did you speak to Mr. Trump, and what did he tell you? We've spoken, uh, and we're ready to, you know, proceed, go forward. Obviously, you know, he's firm in his belief, as many people are, that he cannot get a fair trial in New York City um, based on the jury pool. And um, I think one could argue that that's probably uh, an accurate assessment um, based on what happened today. The fact that Reed Hoffman, Democratic financier, financed this case, and that was not something when Donald Trump was accused of making statements that this was a politically motivated um, claim and the judge wouldn't let us go into that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, there are plenty of issues. Takapina also said the courtroom had a, quote, circus atmosphere. Joining us live now is Gary Bai, an Epic Times reporter who's been following the case. Gary, welcome. A pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Now, you spoke with Trump's attorney, Joseph Takapina. What did he tell you? 
So it was basically in the courthouse as the uh, clerk was delivering the verdict. Uh, he just informed me that they're planning to appeal the appeal the case, and we had a brief discussion on uh, you know my my conversation with Alan Dershowitz, uh, the Harvard Law professor, about how uh, in Manhattan it's it's really statistically speaking. Um, a very uh, deep blue. Uh, it's a, a Democrat, uh, you know, it's a Democrat dominant state. So the jury pool is likely, um, and that we we're talking about Dershowitz's claim, uh, it's likely favored against Trump. And now the jury found that Carol did not prove that Trump raped her, but they did find that Trump sexually abused her. What was the reasoning there? Right, so it's kind of strange. Um, the, the judge instructed the jury that, uh, you know, there would be a spectrum. Of, of charges, you can. It's, it ranges from you know the highest severity, which is rape, uh, and then you go lower from there, which is sexual abuse, and you go even lower, which the judge said during uh, you know near the opening statements during the trial that uh, you know it could be also just an inappropriate touch that uh, you know the victim that found the alleged victim found very uncomfortable. So uh, and the jury found in this case that um, Carol did not establish that there was a preponderance of evidence of rape. But however, they found that she did establish that Trump sexually abused her. So that's the second, that's sort of the second level of severity that they found. And coming back to what Dershowitz says, he's pointing to the statute of limitation, saying that that should mean that Carol's case never should have been brought. How did it get this far then? Yeah, so uh, again, going back to uh, Mr. Takopina's words about this being a strange verdict, um, in May 2022, the New York legislature actually passed an act. It's called the Adult Survivors Act. So that act allowed some victims of uh, some sexual offenses to um, file a lawsuit within a one-year window, um, starting from November 2022, that... Uh, allows them to file a civil lawsuit against their alleged perpetrators. So that she was able to utilize that opportunity and, and be aware that this, this lawsuit that kind of bounced around state and federal charges for years now beginning in 2019. So by in 2022, she was able to utilize that act uh, within, within the New York state system to file this lawsuit. So that's why, that's how she's overcome the uh, statute of limitations uh, requirement on the case. All right, and digging into the case a little more, though the jury found that Trump did not rape Carol, they say that he did defame her in his denial. Could you break that down for us? Right, so going back to that, uh, that, that point about, um, uh, you know, they did find that, she, they, they didn't find he raped her, but they did find that he sexually abused her. Um, and, and, you know, just a point of note here, the proof required in this case, which is the civil case, is uh, at least for that rape charge is, is, is beyond the preponderance of evidence. And that's, that's actually not, it's, it means more likely than not. So it's much lower than the proof required in the criminal case, right? Um, so yeah, so, so she's, they, based on the fact that, you know, they found Trump sexually abused her, um, that kind of gave rise to the defamation charge when, you know, they found that when Trump denied um, that this incident happened, then therefore that they found was a valid uh, premise leading to the count of defamation. I see. Now, Trump's attorney claimed that Democratic donor Reid Hoffman funded this lawsuit. What do we know about that claim? So it's pretty interesting uh, because that charge, uh, that, that uh, information was discovered during pre-trial when uh, about a couple weeks before, before the start date of the trial, Carol's lawyers actually emailed uh, or sent a letter to Tacopino, Trump's attorney, saying that Carol 
suddenly recalled, um, I'm paraphrasing, suddenly recalled that uh, she had some alternative source of funding from uh, this uh, LinkedIn founder, Mr. Reid Hoffman. Um, so that information was actually used by Tacopina to uh, file with the court to allow them to, to allow Trump's attorneys to depose um, you know, Carol. And, uh, and that happened. Uh, and uh, so that's how that, that information was, was brought to public. And you know, days after that uh, filing, uh, Reid Hoffman came out to, to confirm that, that claim, that he was actually, and he's a Democrat mega donor, um, of course, and he confirmed that claim that you know, they were, he was actually funding at least part of the legal expenses of Carol. Fascinating. Great to dig into these issues with you. Thanks so much, Gary. Great to be here. Thank you. Next, Tucker Carlson speaks out a second time after parting ways with Fox. And this time, he gives us some hints as to where and if he'll have another show. Take another look at his new Twitter video. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. There aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. The former Fox News host did not say anything about his former network in the video, coming two weeks after the company said it had parted ways with Carlson. Few details about his departure have emerged so far. Elon Musk has not issued a public response to Carlson's video, which has racked up hundreds of thousands of views and impressions in a short time. And over in Arizona, the Cary Lake case against Maricopa County and Governor Katie Hobbs is back on the court's docket. Lake's attorney plans to introduce new evidence that allegedly shows county officials used failed tabulators in the 2022 election. NTD's Faye Quarter has that story. Now that the Arizona Supreme Court has overturned the dismissal of Carrie Lake's case against Maricopa County, her legal team gets another chance to prove their case. This time, they say there's new evidence that will show a claim of faulty signature verification should not have been dismissed. There were extraordinary findings of misconduct that are directly related to the court's findings in its December 24th, 22 order dismissing that claim. The issues are of such an extensive nature. They show that Maricopa officials conducted secret testing on the tabulators on October 14th, 17th, and 18th. That's after the logic and accuracy test was certified. Lake's attorney made the claim at a court hearing on Monday. He said 260 out of 446 tabulators failed during the secret testing, yet they were used in the election. Superior Court Judge Peter Thompson had dismissed the complaint on Christmas Eve, saying Lake's lawyers had not proven Maricopa officials committed any kind of misconduct. Thompson ordered the hearing after the Supreme Court remanded it back to the trial court. During the proceeding, Lake's attorney asked for more time to prepare his case. But Governor Katie Hobbs's attorney objected. We are not we are not agreeable to that at all. Um, this case does need to proceed. It needs to proceed quickly. Hobbs's attorney argued that the proceeding was a long time coming, and that the court had not determined it would allow new evidence. Judge Thompson has scheduled the trial to occur May 17th, 18th, and 19th. 
And in health news, a meta-analysis of studies on the effectiveness of COVID vaccines says they might not be that effective after just a few months of being administered. Meanwhile, as the national and global pandemic emergencies officially end, local and private COVID vaccine mandates are also being reversed in various places across the U.S. Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas for his analysis of these developments. Dr. Atlas formerly advised the White House Coronavirus Task Force and now serves as a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Let's see that now. Dr. Scott Atlas, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. Sure, happy to be here. Now, a new study suggests that COVID vaccines effectiveness may drop to near zero within months. What's your take on these findings? Well, it really confirms, this is a study that reviewed about 40 other studies, and it really is confirming what we've known for more than a year now, particularly about the Omicron variants. And that is uh, confirming what Denmark showed back, I think, at uh, December 2021, that the efficacy of, of infection drops to, like you said, near zero after about six weeks. And then the New York City study confirmed in February 2022 that in children, the efficacy is essentially zero after 30 days. What this means to people is that getting these vaccines with boosters does not have significant protection after a number of weeks against infection or spreading the infection. And therefore, again, it reiterates the bottom line on the vaccines. It is a private benefit to prevent high-risk people and elderly from dying, but there is no real public benefit that does not protect others by you getting vaccinated. Others are not a danger to you if you are vaccinated. And so there is no scientific rationale for any kind of vaccine mandate. And so what do you think should be done in light of the, this research? Well, I think that all of the vaccine mandates uh, long before this, but certainly uh, including this, have, have been uh, really exposed as, as a fraud, as a scientific fraud. There is no reason to have any COVID vaccine mandate for these, uh, for the, with this technology that we've been using. Uh, and in fact, it should really prompt a, a, a more public uh, hearing, really, on how these mandates were even uh, being put into place, because it's been not just pseudoscience, it's been contrary to the data, it's contrary to fundamental human biology, and uh, in reality, it's been unethical. Why wasn't this dealt with earlier? Why are we only acknowledging it now? Well, that, that's sort of a good uh, question that is difficult to really explain because motivation of people who are lying or distorting is not simple. Uh, but you know what we've seen, again, is repeated behavior of a lack of transparency, a lack of information, a lack of honesty with the public, uh, compounded by grossly incompetent leaders, people who have not known the data and not really transmitted the truth, like the people, uh, including Dr. Fauci and then Dr. Walensky, repeated failure of people deemed as experts that were not uh, really cognizant or certainly not honest about the data. Pandemic mandates are being rolled back at various levels across the U.S. and across the world. 
what's your take on this change? You know, is it a positive thing? Is it too little, too late? How do you see it? Uh, we're getting back to some sense of rationale. Uh, it's really sad that it had to go through the court system to get bizarre uh, mandates and restrictions on constitutional freedoms. And we have to remember something. In the future, if nothing else, there is never a time where these health guidelines should override constitutional rights. I think that there, there's so many things to talk about in this topic, but that's one of them. We need to have people who are government officials understand that we are a free country, and uh, yes, there are scientific principles that have to be taken into account, but emergencies in these so-called public health settings do not override the basic constitutional rights of the United States and Americans. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Scott Atlas. Really appreciate your time. Okay, happy to be here, thank you. As the clock ticks to default, President Biden sits down with congressional leaders at the White House for debt ceiling talks. NTD's Iris Tao brings us the latest on if any progress has been made. Good evening, Steph. For the first time in months and just weeks before the U.S. is about to run out of cash and default on its payment, President Biden sits down with congressional leaders at the White House to talk about how to raise the nation's debt ceiling. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told us right after the meeting that neither side has really changed their stance. And I also asked him if any progress has been made. Watch. Do you think any progress has been made through this meeting today? Well, the progress is made is that we were actually able to meet. So that's a difference in the president's take. For 97 days, he denied the ability for anybody to negotiate. Republicans are insisting that in order for them to agree to raising the nation's debt ceiling, spending cuts must happen. But the White House is insisting that no spending cuts should be attached as a condition to raise the debt ceiling. And it further criticized Republicans' plan during today's press briefing by saying this. The House Republican Default on America Act will cut veterans' health care visits, teachers, and school support staffs. And Democratic leaders in Congress are siding with President Biden, saying this about Republicans' bill on spending cuts. His bill doesn't have a single uh, Democrat in support, and it gets us nowhere. But Speaker McCarthy, in addition to blaming President Biden for not holding talks much sooner, also defended Republicans' plan by calling attack from the other side a lie. Watch. Cutting the veterans is a lie. Where in the bill does it say we cut veterans? All I'm asking is that we spend the amount of money we spent five months ago. And McCarthy says the big four congressional leaders will again meet with President Biden this Friday. But President Biden is also expected to give a speech tomorrow about the debt ceiling and also further criticize Republicans' plan. But also remains to be seen whether Biden would signal any change in his stance and also if anything has changed after today's meeting. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Coming up, lawmakers want to reduce fentanyl overdoses, which end many young lives. On Tuesday, several Democratic officials in California highlighted Fentanyl Awareness Day. We'll have that story and more coming up on NTD News.
Welcome back. A manhunt has kicked off in Philadelphia. Police are now searching for two dangerous inmates who escaped from a co correctional facility on Sunday night. One of them facing four murder charges. 24-year-old Nasir Grant and 18-year-old Amin Hurst have been missing for nearly two days. The two inmates slipped through a hole on the yard fence and broke free from the Philadelphia Industrial Correction Center at around 8.30 p.m. Sunday. But their absence went unnoticed until three headcounts later. Among the two, Hearst carries four homicide charges, including the killing of a 20-year-old who had just been released from prison in 2021. His companion, Grant, was in custody for firearms violation, criminal conspiracy, and narcotic charges. On Tuesday, Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney expressed anger during a press conference, saying that clearly the system screwed up. And shortly after the jail breach, the facility was placed in lockdown. On another front, May 9th is National Fentanyl Awareness Day, created to shed light on the lethality of the drug. In California, where overdoses take the lives of hundreds of teens a year, lawmakers spoke on the drug issue. National Fentanyl Awareness Day is on May 9th, which aims to increase awareness on fentanyl and decrease demand for the drug that took lives by surprise. Recognized as an opioid epidemic in America, Republican and Democratic lawmakers have different approaches to tackle the fentanyl crisis. We've introduced new laws that will employ emergency responders to ensure we have a public health response when people overdose. We've introduced bills to extend Narcan to places like bars and gas stations so that it's there as an emergency intervention to save lives. Members are also pushing bills to have fentanyl test strips in Cal State universities and community colleges, as well as holding social media platforms accountable where drugs are often sold. Fentanyl now kills more Americans under 50 than any other cause of death, more than heart disease, cancer, homicide, suicide or accidents. Assemblyman Haney says almost 6,000 people have died from fentanyl overdoses or unintentional fentanyl poisoning in 2021 in California. Two milligrams is considered lethal. Bills that aim to increase penalties for drug dealers have struggled to pass in California's legislature, as officials debate over whether to use punishment or prevention. A lot of the reasons people use substances are underlying traumas. Stress, anxiety. We have heard parents of victims who lost their lives who said, my child was just trying to take something for their anxiety. According to a 2020 unclassified report from the Drug Enforcement Administration, Mexico and China are the primary sources for fentanyl and related substances trafficked into the United States via smuggling and mail. India has also emerged as a source for fentanyl. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin, who has some sad news from the college basketball world. Thank you, Steph. Former Louisville head coach Denny Crom passed away today at the age of 86. No cause was given, though he had reportedly suffered a pair of strokes in recent years. Crum led the Cardinals to national titles in 1980 and 1986, while making six trips to the Final Four. The Hall of Fame coach both played under and started his coaching career as an assistant to John Wooden at UCLA. Known for his bright red sport coats and always having a rolled up stat sheet in his hand, 
Crum started at Louisville in 1971 and coached there for 30 years. Known as Cool Hand Luke for his calm demeanor on the sideline, he retired in 2001 with 675 wins, which was the 15th most at the time. Crum is survived by his wife, Susan. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, plenty more playoff action. First in the NBA, a pair of crucial Game 5s as Boston hosts Philadelphia and newly minted MVP Joel Embiid in a series tied at 2. And Phoenix travels to Denver looking to slow down former MVP Nikola Jokic in a series also tied at two games apiece. And in the NHL, the Devils and Hurricanes play Game 4 in New Jersey with Carolina holding a 2-1 lead. While in Seattle, the Kraken haven't slowed down since upsetting the defending champs in round one. They host Dallas up two games to one. And finally, for you baseball fans, all 30 teams are in action tonight, and that includes the LA Angels, who start to a star and former MVP Shohei Otani on the mound as they host the reigning champion Houston Astros. And that is it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.